Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week we're reading Mark 12, 28-44, a collection of texts that begins with the greatest commandment to love both God and neighbor. We think about what it means to love in this context, including that fidelity to one's neighbors is the prerequisite for loving God. But what really interests us is that Jesus and one of the scribes, who have been antagonists throughout the book of Mark, find common ground in this commandment. We wonder whether we, too, could find common ground with our opponents by taking a step back to focus on love of God and love of neighbor. Finally, we discuss the story of a widow putting her last two coins in the temple treasury. Here is the measure of faithfulness that Jesus has been seeking, someone willing to relinquish control and trust her life to God and the community of faith. Now we wonder, will the community return her faithfulness by sustaining her in her time of need? Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, it's Bible Worm time. It is Bible Worm time. Bobby, I am a little bit of a flaming disaster today. Like, it's a miracle that I wore shoes to work, and I <laughs> am sort of, I, I, I just, yeah, I don't know. I need some kind of grounding exercises or sleeping pills. I don't know. Yeah, is there something going on in particular, or did you just wake up? I just wake up sometimes like a flaming disaster. There are, I mean, I... I last week I think when we met I told you that I had just had a rehearsal for this concert so the concert oh, yeah. is now tomorrow. Oh yeah. There's like 150 people are coming like Whoa. it's like a for real concert and um but then there's all just like the regular work like yeah, we have religious we have religious school tomorrow two of my teachers are sick like I have to oh. you know be in 12 places at once and then go home and take a nap and put on a concert so whatever I'm trying to do all the Yeah. It's going to be great. <laughs> yeah. You should be a, like a less talented and accomplished person, and then you wouldn't have so many things to do. We may be actually on the um, opening the door into the life where people are like, you actually should not be doing all those things. <laughs> no. Yeah. Let's take some of those things off your plate, That's not happening. Sister. No, it'll we be need, fun. I'm looking forward to it. We need to get the mamalas in Arkansas. Y'all need to Arkansas? come do it. Yeah, like... Or I guess I could just come to Atlanta. That might be easier. <laughs> but I mean, you know. I I've, never, I've never seen you. I've listened to you a little bit. We have a lot of fun. Yeah. We are very ridiculous. I went to an elementary school family dance last night with my six-year-old and my two-year-old. <laughs> and my wife and me. And it was a, there was a lot, a lot, a lot of Taylor Swift happening. And lots of high-pitched screaming mm-hmm, related mm-hmm. to the Taylor Swift happening. So what was the proportion of dancing to running around the room, would you say? I mean, honestly, with elementary schoolers, it's not always easy to distinguish what is dancing and what is running around. There mm. was a fair amount of dancing, mm. but most people mm. didn't have like moves. Like they weren't doing like routines <laughs> or anything. But they were interacting with the music that was happening. They weren't just they like were. chasing each yeah, other they around. They were like jumping up and down to the beat. Like they were doing, they were doing some dance-ish things. The funny thing was it was like, kindergarten through fifth grade, which are very different. Very different. So the fifth graders are like starting to be interested in each other. And the kindergartners are just like having a time. They're interested in their parents. (laughs) They are. (laughs) Although I will say I've been to a couple things with my daughter and she has wanted to stay with me. But last night she really didn't. She was off with her Mm. friends, which is both beautiful and also sad. Yeah. Now you're alone. You're the wallflower at the elementary school dance. I am. I, I mean, I was when I was also when I was in elementary school. <laughs> so there's nothing new there, but yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So Amy, this week we are in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 44. We are 
getting close to Holy Week. We've just got a couple of weeks left. We're in Jerusalem. We are in the last week of Jesus's life. He's having some urgent conversations with people that's sort of been like we've been headed there all through this gospel along the way to this sort of confrontation between Jesus and the central religious authority in Jerusalem. Is there anything you want to say to get us ready for reading our texts today? I think the only thing I want to remind us of is that the the conversation we were reading before this, they were really, you know, I remember I was distressed by it in the last episode. Jesus is kind of engaged in some verbal sparring yes. with, uh, with the religious leadership. And the religious leaders are kind of trying to entrap Jesus or trick him into saying something that's going to get him in trouble. But he is... Jesus is a clever guy and he does not fall into their traps. And so the reason I bring that up now is that to my great joy, we will move into a different kind of discourse in this section of text yes. that um, I was very happy. I was, I don't like verbal sparring. Like, I don't like, I just don't like that. And it, I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> like when people are trying to undercut each other and that sort of thing. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. And, you know, in this text, as you're pointing out, the first interaction here is exactly with one of the legal experts who is who Jesus, one of the groups Jesus has been arguing with for the whole chapter up until now. Yes. yes. But we do very much get a different interaction here. Well, why don't we pick up uh, this? Basically, there are three little units of text today that are related, but they're sort of discrete sections. So we'll read this Mm -hmm. one about Jesus and the legal expert beginning in Mark 12, 28. I am in the Common English Bible. One of the legal experts heard their dispute and saw how well Jesus answered them. He came over and asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus replied, the most important one is, Israel, listen, our God is the one Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You will love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The legal expert said to him, Well said, teacher. You have truthfully said that God is one and there is no other besides him. And to love God with all of the heart, a full understanding and all of one's strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more important than all kinds of entirely burned offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered with wisdom, he said to him, You aren't far from God's kingdom. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Hmm. So I just want to start with this legal expert and that line that he overheard this verbal sparring that you were talking about. And his response is, wow, he really knows how to answer those questions. So I'm going to go ask him a new question. Do you have thoughts, insights into this legal expert? Just like, what do you think about him? You know, it's so interesting because it it sounds, as you said in the beginning, like maybe he's going to continue by asking another impossible question. This is an impossible question. Yeah. And it is a, you know, there is a Jewish story also about this, this question that I think I've told on the podcast before about these two rabbis, Hillel and Shammai, and someone who goes knocking on Shammai's door and says, I want to learn Torah. And Shammai says, great. And the guy says, teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot, which is, I mean, like that's kind of a snotty thing to say to someone who's, who's dedicated their entire life to that, you know, depth and breadth of this teaching. Yeah. And so the guy leaves and then he knocks on this other rabbi's door, Hillel, and asks the same question. And Hillel's answer is basically, you should love your fellow human being as yourself. Now go and study. Mm. So that's the sort of famous Jewish story on this subject, which yeah. I tell mostly because, partially because the answers are not so different. Right. But also partially because that question of like, there are just a whole lot of commandments we have <laughs> yeah. here. And we want you to, we want you to raise up one. Yeah. And uh I understand why someone, why, why a rabbi might not, might choose not to do that. Might just say, I'm not going to raise up one. Yeah. But Jesus does. I'm curious. I think it's so important that a similar teaching to what Jesus says here was also already in Judaism 
in the first century. Shammai and Hillel were rough contemporaries of Jesus. And so this is not, I mean, I don't think Jesus, well, I don't know. I guess what I'm curious about here is, do you think the legal expert had an answer in mind and he Mm. wanted to see if Jesus could get there? Mm -hmm. Or do you think the legal expert is wrestling with this question of what is most important and wants to see what Jesus Mm -hmm. says? Do you have one way of thinking about that or another? That's such an interesting question. And and I think that for no particular reason, I was sort of coming from a third place, which oh. is, I'm going to ask you an impossible question. Mm. Sort of with the expectation that you're not going to be able to, you're going to get stuck in this. Yeah. You're going to get stuck in this question. But then actually being oh, surprised and delighted that Jesus is not stuck and is actually like, actually, hey, hey, I think you're right. Oh, I like that. So on your reading, the legal expert actually is starting out a little bit challenging Jesus again. Like, I'm going to try to get you like, like we've been trying to get you previously. But then he's able to change his mind in the middle of this conversation. Is that, am I understanding you correctly? That is, that is how I, that is how I want to read it. That's how I want the world to work. (laughs) What I was thinking was he has already, he has heard the way Jesus has been handling all these questions Mm-hmm. And he sort of said, wow, this guy really knows his stuff. And then mm-hmm. has asked him a genuine question. That's so interesting. So he's already made the move before he ever asked this question. But I think either, either way, there, there's clearly a change of heart. This legal expert is not like all the other legal experts by yes. the end of this story. Yes. It's so important. I mean, as you were saying earlier, but it, Mark is not simply saying that all legal experts are terrible people who are hopelessly lost. Mm-hmm. They've been an enemy of Jesus in this whole gospel, but here is one who is able to say something different and he and Jesus are able to reconcile in some mm-hmm. way. And that that's really crucial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now Jesus's response, can you just talk a little bit about these two? The most important one is, love the Lord, your God. The second one is love your neighbor as yourself. Why do you think Jesus, I mean, where does he get those from? And why do you think those two? You know, I will tell you, so these are uh, both teachings from, certainly the first one's from Deuteronomy. The second one's from Deuteronomy too, right? I mean, I think it's in there actually a couple times. The second one, as I know it, is Leviticus 19, but it may be there in other places as well. Okay, so... Certainly they, they have a life in the Torah. The way that what struck me most reading them this time was that we sing these words all the time in the Jewish tradition. Right. So the first one, the Shema, we would call it the Shema and the Ve'ahavta. The Shema means here. So that's the first line. And Ve'ahavta means, and you shall love. And so that's the second one. Right. And so... I just feel like this is one of the first prayers that Jews learn. Many people say it in the morning and also at bedtime. Many people say it to their babies from infancy. Like there are children's books called the bedtime Shema. Like it's, this is really central to Jewish practice. And the other one too, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We often start prayer with the words, I take upon myself the commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And by this merit, I open my mouth. Mm. Like until you have, until you can take this upon yourself, God doesn't really want to hear. Keep your mouth shut. Yeah. God doesn't really want to hear from you (laughs) until you, until you take this on. So these are, they're just so alive for me. Yeah. In my, in my daily life and practice. I appreciate your sharing that and saying it that way. I think some Christians, no one in our audience, I'm sure, have read this text as here is Jesus saying, ah, the law doesn't matter that much. What really matters is love. And that this becomes like Judaism is legalistic and Christianity is about love. Mm -hmm. And it's so important what you are saying that that is not the way that is, that the essence of Judaism understands itself in exactly the same way in the ancient world and yet still today. So Jesus is not contrasting Judaism here. Jesus is being Jewish and mm-hmm. saying, here's what, here's what matters to us. 
Mm-hmm. I think that gets lost in some Christian interpretations of this passage. Yeah, no, I would imagine so. And it, and it's, you know, sometimes the, the commandments, and I think this is true in some, can be true in the Jewish community, and I think also in the Christian world, when there are commandments or, or statements in our scripture that are incredibly specific <laughs> yeah. about what you're supposed to do, sometimes we, we get a little hung up on those yeah. and sort of the letter of them. But I think being constantly redirected back to like your foundation is these things and those other laws are meant to be bubbling up from that. And in cases where they don't, then you need to investigate what's going on. You know, like you need to, you need to check yourself, but yeah, these should be your foundations. So the Shema, as you're talking about it, the first of these Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your being, all your mind, all your strength. As that's mm-hmm. told in Deuteronomy 6, there's only three terms mm-hmm. there, right? Heart, yeah. soul, strength, or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's right. We have the addition of mind here. That's right. Do you have any thoughts about the significance of that? You know, it's so interesting, Bobby, when I read this, I didn't notice mind here. I noticed a little bit later when the the scribe is speaking back to him and sort of re-quoting him that he he goes back to only three, but one of oh, the I three is but one of the three is understanding. So he yeah. pulls on the on the mind instead of the soul. Mm. Maybe what I really want to ask is how you think about those terms, heart, soul mind, strength? I mean, it's such a good question, Bobby. And it's such a, I don't know if I have a very eloquent answer for it. I will say the word that's used for strength in Hebrew, me'odecha, me'od is also can just mean very, like yeah. it's, you know? And so I always think of it as like your, your veriness, like yeah. your, your vigor, your yeah. life force, your mm-hmm. whatever, your animatingness. And so I guess I see that as sort of informing all of it. Like all aspects of your being should be oriented toward loving God. And and I do want to also back up with you and think about like, what do we mean by love? Because that means a lot of different things. But I haven't thought recently about the particular way of breaking it down. And what is the difference between how you love with your heart versus your soul versus your strength versus your mind? Do you have thoughts about that? No, I love the way you said that. Meodecha also maod also means much. And so I sometimes mm, say with mm-hmm. all your muchitude or your, you know, like it's just mm-hmm. like everything you got. Yeah. And yes. I, like I think that in some ways collects all the other ones in a way. Mm-hmm. I really like the way you said that. The the word soul there, in my understanding, at least in the Hebrew form, is about your like your your essence or your life force. Not so much about like a separate, some sort of immortal Mm -hmm. part of you that, you know, is going to float off to heaven when you die, but like, uh, the very essence of your being Mm -hmm. in the Hebrew form, the word heart can is like sort of performs the functions that we think of as the mind. Yes. Especially in the, like in the Deuteronomy period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if by now in the Greek, the term heart is kind of coming to think more like emotively. And so the addition of that word mind is trying to capture both aspects, like Mm -hmm. all your emotive side, all your cognitive self, everything you got, all your, like with, with all every ounce of your strength. Presbyterians really love the uh, addition of mind there (laughs) because we're very like intellectual oriented people. And so to say sometimes especially Christian faith anyway, gets interpreted as you need to check out your, like check your mental acuity Mm. when you come into the faith and Presbyterians and others very much resist that idea that you need to not be an intellectual when you're engaged in your faith. And this sort of gives permission to that. Like, yeah, bring your, bring your critical thinking capacities with you along with all of this other stuff. Along with all the other stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. You raised the question there, which is the right question of, so what does love mean in this context? Mm-hmm. What are you thinking about that? I am thinking about our old teacher, John Hayes of Blessed Memory, who 
I think he would always want to translate love as something like amity, which wouldn't really be a verb, but did I make yeah. that up? He, he would always press upon the, the point that we don't mean love like you should feel gushy warmness. Right. Like, I don't really care what, like, can you command someone to feel something? Who knows? But that's not really what they're going for. They're, they're going for how do you act towards right. someone, towards God or towards your neighbor in a way that reflects love and goodwill and care and, you know, something like that. That's such an important point, Amy. And when you mentioned John, I, my, my mind goes to Esther Haddon's vassal treaty as, mm, <laughs> as, as yes, one says. Yes, that is right. Uh-huh. Which is the background, of course, of Deuteronomy. And in that sense, in the Esther Haddon's vassal treaty, you're supposed to love the suzerain, Esther Haddon. And it doesn't mm. definitely does not mean like feel warm and gushy towards. Mm-hmm. It means give your loyalty to and do the things you said you were going to do. Mm-hmm. And so here, I, I think you're exactly right. This love is that. Like you need to be committed to God, be committed to your neighbor, and live up to the obligations that both of those things entail. And what a thing to say. Like I, I love that you brought back our the ancient Near Eastern background. I had forgotten that detail. But that the part of what they mean by love is show your loyalty to, to put right up next to each other, show your loyalty to God and show your loyalty to your neighbor. That's just very beautiful. It is very beautiful. <laughs> it is. Now I want to pick on Jesus for just a minute here. Oh. Because the legal expert said, which commandment mm. is the most important of all? And Jesus comes back with two. Mm-hmm. So why does he not just pick one of those, do you think? Well, since you ask, I mean, I suppose we could try to see these as, they're not presented in the Torah as this is one continuous commandment. But I don't think it would be impossible to imagine that the love we show our neighbor is a direct, a direct result of love for God, because that is, I mean, I feel like Jesus is saying that kind of thing all the time. Like, you you know, like whoever welcomes the least of them welcomes me. Like the way that we treat each other is actually a direct, has a direct connection. Yeah to our relationship to God. So I don't know, maybe that's what Jesus has in mind, or maybe he's just stretching that question. <laughs> no, I really like that way of uh, talking about it. And when you say that, it reminds me of conversations we have fairly often about texts like Amos and Micah, which say, in which God says, you cannot love me, you cannot worship me unless mm-hmm. you are also taking care of your neighbor. You are exactly mm-hmm. right that it's not saying they're one in the same thing. So if you love your neighbor, you have loved God. But it is saying you can't do the one without the other. Right. So it's more it like is, a, yes. it's like mm-hmm. an ellipse that has two foci in li- instead of like a circle that has one point. And it's so interesting to think about the relationship between them because I just talked about it as sort of your love for God should grow into love for neighbor. Yes. But the way it actually shows up in the Jewish liturgy is you can't offer prayer. You can't praise God until you take upon yourself the commandment to love your neighbor. Yes. So loving the neighbor is in some sense a prerequisite Mm -hmm. for true love of God. But I think you like practically speaking, you can also go the other way Yeah, where you, you love God and then realize that that entails a certain kind of ethic Yeah, as well. Mm -hmm. You were mentioning before that the legal expert repeats Jesus back to him, which is, I mean, you see this in the biblical text from time to time. It sort of struck me as unnecessary. Like he could have just said, yeah, that's a good answer. Mm -hmm. But he gives the answer back as you were noticing with only three terms in the Shema, but then, and also adding to love one's neighbor sorry, to love God and to love one's neighbor is more important than all kinds of burned offerings and sacrifices. Mm-hmm. So he mm-hmm. gives Jesus sort of back what Jesus said, but he, he interprets it a little bit. He adds something to it. Can yeah. you talk about what he adds there and how you think I mean, that's significant? 
what he's adding is is like pretty much directly from the prophets who say yeah. that you again I would may I would say the prophets are not saying there's anything wrong with sacrifice right but you know similarly to how now we would say you can't offer words of prayer until you have t- you know taken seriously that you need to love your neighbor it's the same thing here like sacrifice comes after yes and so there are many many passages in the prophets where they are so distressed to see people carrying out all you know all this formal worship and then see them go out and treat each other like garbage yes and and god says that's that is abhorrent to me i would rather you not do anything i this is te- you this is so hypocritical i mean when you say that i'm thinking hosea to love is better mm-hmm. than sacrifice mm-hmm. I'm thinking about that Amos 5 text I was talking about before where God says, I, I hate, I despise your festivals. Mm-hmm. Let justice mm-hmm. roll down like waters. Yes. Which doesn't mean God doesn't want to be worshipped. It means God doesn't want to be worshipped without there being justice. Mm-hmm. If you read this in the context of, of the audience of Mark, mm-hmm. which we have dated sometime around the destruction of the temple in 70, mm. that destruction of the temple caused a crisis for yeah. real, for real. In both in Judaism, especially in Judaism, and also in Christianity, because now you can't sacrifice because you're only allowed to sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem and it doesn't exist. So what are you going to do? I've been teaching Judaism in my one of my classes this semester, and I was talking about how rabbinic Judaism uses exactly quotations like this to say, how are we going to be Jewish when there is no possibility of a sacrificial system? And so they're thinking through these exact same kinds of things. It's it's about love of neighbor and love of God, not about sacrifice, because that's necessary to rethink how to be Jewish in a post-temple mm-hmm. world. Absolutely. So maybe this, either this scribe is sort of imagining that, or we might just think this scribe is saying stuff that actually fits better like 40 years later in the, in the time of the writing of the gospel more than in the time of Jesus himself. Jesus then says to him, you aren't far from God's kingdom. That sounds, this is so different than anything Jesus has said to a legal expert in this whole Mm -hmm. gospel so far. I mean, you know, I I almost said this just as we were finishing the last bit of our conversation. And then I was like, well, maybe I shouldn't. But now it feels especially present. It feels surprising the way that these legal experts at least have been characterized in this text, that a legal expert, a scribe would say, you're right. It is more important that we love our neighbor than that we worry about sacrifices. Because if you want to get all caught up in the details of things and precision and how to execute and like check all the boxes, man, sacrifice is the way to do that. It is very clear what you are supposed to do. So seeing them... I just feel like they're, uh, you know, if if we imagine, and to some extent this is true, but as you've pointed out, it's 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 not exactly that there are two perfect camps. But we, if we imagine generally that the legal experts and Jesus are sparring with each other, I feel like they both sort of take a step towards each other. Yes. In this moment, yes. the expert, the legal expert, says, "Like you're right," and yeah. Jesus sees, yeah, sees him for what he is. Doesn't just say you're you're my enemy. You're you know, like you're on the other team. And it's very, it's, it's lovely. It might be pressing slightly, but I think it's possible to read this as Jesus saying it is actually possible, at least in Mark's understanding mm-hmm. to enter the kingdom of heaven as a Jew who has no real relationship to Jesus Mm-hmm. which is not how many modern Christians would understand that. Mm-hmm. But it reminds me of that conversation we had a few weeks ago about when Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners, and he said, the righteous don't need a doctor. Mm-hmm. And we talked about may- there maybe there are some people who are righteous without needing Jesus. And here's another instance that I think can be read that way, maybe mm-hmm. should be read that way. Jesus is not trying to convert him to some other way of being. He's saying, mm-hmm. if you get that, which he has gotten out of his own tradition, you mm-hmm. you got it, which mm-hmm. is a really lovely kind of thing for Jesus to say, I think. Yeah, I love that. The other thing I really like at the, at the end is after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. 
So <laughs> this interaction shut down this sparring conversation, mm. but it didn't shut it down by way of saying like, we're so angry, we can't say anymore. It shut it down by saying we're so close together mm. that we can honor each other and there's nothing left to be said. So nobody now wants to come and like challenge because we just had this beautiful moment. Right. Like the energy has shifted. We're not, yeah. we're not in that sort of game verbal duels anymore where something real has happened. Yeah. That goes away fairly quickly. <laughs> yeah, the, well. next, <laughs> the next section that I'm about to read is in the CEB is titled Jesus Corrects the Legal Experts, which yeah, as well. you know, these titles are not part of the biblical text, but anyway, we had a nice <laughs> moment, whatever happened. We did, next. we did enjoy that moment. Yeah. Hi everyone, it's Bobby here. We're excited to announce our 2024 summer series on biblical images of creation. This six-part series begins in May after Pentecost and includes texts from Genesis, Job, Psalms, Leviticus, and Ezekiel. We're especially excited to be collaborating with Spirit and Truth Publishing, which has released a vacation Bible school and all-age Sunday school curriculum designed by experienced Christian educators called Learning Together, Created to Care, which can be used in parallel with the Bible Room podcast on creation. For more information, visit spiritandtruthpublishing.com, patreon.com slash Podcast, or look for our posts in the Narrative Lectionary Facebook group. We're looking forward to talking about creation with you this summer. In the meantime, let's get back to this week's podcast. I'm picking up in verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he said, why do the legal experts say that the Christ is David's son? David himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right side until I turn your enemies into your footstool. David himself calls him Lord, so how can he be David's son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Okay, this is a quirky little text, Amy. And this is, this one's pretty weird. (laughs) Yeah, can you- Can you get us started at thinking about what's going on here? So they, they are, I think Jesus is referring to a Psalm, Psalm 110. Yes. Okay. A couple pieces of background here. One, as many people may know, many of the Psalms are attributed to David. They have a little like Le David up top. And this is one of those Psalms. Also, we should know that, In Hebrew, there is a proper name for God that is sometimes in English written Y-H-W-H in all capital letters, and Jews don't say that word. And so as a sign of respect. And so instead of that word, we use the title, my Lord, Lord Adonai. In the Psalm, I feel like it's sort of playing with that because... The the word itself, Adonai, doesn't necessarily mean God. It just means Lord. So it could be like lords and ladies kind of right. Lord. So it get the psalm gets very sticky. <laughs> like who yeah. who is talking and what exactly are they talking about? Yeah, it says of David, the Lord, meaning like this is the divine name of God, said to my Lord, lowercase l, like lords and ladies sit at my right hand while I make your enemies your footstool. So I've just opened up a big mess for you. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, no, that is, I mean, that's a really helpful interpretation of the Psalm because what is happening here is very much a sort of quirky, almost kind of Midrashic interpretation of Psalm 110. And this Psalm became in the Christian tradition, it's the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. I think it becomes Mm. understood as a Christological reference So the Lord, that is God, said to my Lord, that is Jesus. And then David is the one who is saying it. So David said, God said to my Lord Jesus. And so then the question they're asking is, how can Jesus be the son of David if David is referring to Jesus as my Lord? Like you wouldn't call your son my Lord. And so it is breaking the connection between Jesus and the title son of David is what it's doing, which is, we talked last time, Bartimaeus called Jesus son of David. And Mm -hmm. in that, in that conversation, I commented that nowhere else in the gospel of Mark is that title used of Jesus. We get son of God, we get son of man, we get 
Christ or Messiah. We don't get son of David. And so Jesus, I think, for some reason, is trying to say, we shouldn't, like, son of David is not the best way to think about Jesus, mm-hmm. about myself. Yeah. I, I think that that's about messianic expectations and the kind of things that Jews in the period thought that the Messiah, who was son of David, was going to do. And Jesus seems, in Mark's gospel anyway, to be much more oriented toward the son of man version of Messiah, that coming back on the cloud to set things right from the heavens, mm-hmm. not sort of rising out of a human lineage in order to reinstate the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I that's kind of how I've been reading this as a, a shift of messianic expectation away from a Davidic conception of Messiah toward this other, some more apocalyptic understanding of Messiah. That's a, that's as far as I can get with that. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just I don't I don't I mean I I don't I don't find this little paragraph very moving or compelling which probably oh, makes either. sense as a as a Jew. Um yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> Uh, but I think that's exactly what it is. I think it is sort of a, a midrashic, like we're, you know, the, all these words are here and they can be, you know, read in this different way. And so that's, that's what we're going to do. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think this, this little bit stands out, like the rest of this passage that we're reading today is kind of similarly themed. And this little bit sort of like way over mm-hmm. off to the side in my mind. I almost thought maybe we shouldn't read it, but it's it's there and it's quirky, and so I think. But that's Jesus what it's doing. is in the lineage of David. Well, doesn't Mark does Mark not? Mark say that? doesn't use that language anywhere. I don't think. Oh, okay. I Jesus see. is in the line of David, and that matters very much so to Matthew and to Luke, who you you yes. know draw the lineage yes. and have this yes. genealogy. But in Mark's gospel, Jesus never talks of himself that way. And Mark mm-hmm. never talks of him that way. It That's is Bartimaeus, and then in a text we haven't read yet, but has happened narratively, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the crowd mm-hmm. refers to him as a as son of David, but mm-hmm. it's not used elsewhere. Interesting. I never really paid attention to that, but yeah, Mark's not that in, just not that interested. Well, and then that would make sense because, yes, because otherwise, why are we trying? Why are we perseverating on this point? <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. All right. I'll pick up then in verse 38. Okay. As Jesus was teaching, he said, watch out for the legal experts. They like to walk around in long robes. They want to be greeted with honor in the markets. They long for places of honor in the synagogues and at banquets. They are the ones who cheat widows out of their homes. And to show off, they say long prayers. They will be judged most harshly. So we had a really lovely interaction with the legal expert a few verses ago. Mm-hmm. Now Jesus is back to being critical. Can you talk to me a little bit about what exactly you think Jesus is being critical about? Yeah. I mean, it's that it's doing everything for the honor, you know, it's like, beware of the, the, the educated people who have, fancy titles and power and wear nice clothing and sort of expect to be received honorably in all the places and, you know, perform prayer, but actually make the world a harder place for other people. You know, it's, this is, you should be aware of these people. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. agree. Yeah. And like we were talking about earlier, like Amos and Micah and Hosea would also agree about that about that kind of thing. Can I ask you, a, this I think is a Greek question. In verse 38, at least in my translation, it says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And there's a comma after scribes. I guess my question is, is this a subset of scribes? The scribes who oh. like to walk around in long robes or beware of the scribes? They are the ones who like to. Which is the way the CEB reads it. Yeah. And maybe that's what it says. That's such an interesting question, Amy. I had not thought about how, like, that makes a huge difference. <laughs> like, yeah. like, 
I think the Greek can be read either way. It's just an attributive adjective. So the the scribes, the ones who like to walk around in long robes. Mm-hmm. And so I think you could read that as the CEB has sort of tended, which is to say all scribes like to do this. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's perfectly reasonable to read it as beware of the ones who like to do this. Mm-hmm. I want to read it the second way, not necessarily grammatically for grammatical reasons, but because Jesus just talked to a scribe a minute ago mm-hmm. who got it. And Jesus said, you're close to the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. So it seems weird now to then turn around and say, that guy mm-hmm. is a terrible person. Right. So I want to read it the second way. The- At the very least, yes, it seems like there have to be, even if even if the group is being lumped together generally, we know, we have seen already yes. that Jesus can see individuals within that. Yes. But yeah, but maybe it goes even further than that. And it's just yeah. like, there are scribes out there like this. Yes. And you need to look out for them. Yeah. I think that's right. So it's not their scribiness that's the problem. It's mm-hmm. the the way they inhabit their role. Mm-hmm. That's so important because, you know, when this is just about scribes, although technically, I mean, scribes are basically Bible scholars. And so like we're, mm-hmm. we're probably implicated yeah. in there sort of no matter how you want to read it. I don't dress very nicely, though. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, w- um, when you start to say, like, it, it would be easy to not see yourself implicated here because it's talking about scribes. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, I'm not a scribe. But when you start talking about people who seek honor and people who want to be greeted with respect and people who do things to get recognition, now a whole lot of us are getting implicated yeah. in Jesus's statement. Yes. I think Jesus is being particularly harsh against religious authorities who behave in this way. But I think it's not a far extension to say religious people who behave in this way. Yeah. What do you do with verse 40? They're the ones who cheat widows out of their homes Mm. and say long prayers, which is a weird thing to put in like one sort of phrasing. But do you read them as like literally, I don't know what, how do you think they cheat widows out of their homes? What do you do with that? Mm. I mean, I could imagine that happening in a couple different ways. One is just not actually following the, um, like the the very clear imperatives <laughs> of of the Torah in terms of what what economic justice looks like, and yeah. you know, remembering always within the Jewish framework that you don't really own anything. You are a steward of resources that have been put on earth by God. And, you know, if you have more of them in your stewardship, then you need to do the right thing with them. Yeah. So I feel we could, I think, read it as they are like literally cheating the, like they're, they are literally cheating the widows out of things that would give them, you know, a, a secure home. Or it could be, I don't even know quite how to say this, but like the Torah, the Torah doesn't always just say like, you have to be fair. It's more than fairness. Mm. Like it is, you know, it's the kind of thing where like, even if someone has signed a contract and agreed to do something and said, they will pay you such and such if you, they don't do the thing. And, and the person has willingly entered this contract. The Torah says under certain circumstances, you just can't do it. You can't take their stuff. It doesn't matter what they agreed to. Right. So it's not, so I guess what I'm trying to say in a really long-winded way here is it could be that by modern Western standards, they are being deceptive and they're cheating them out of things. Or it could be they're not being deceptive and by modern Western standards, they're being fair. That's how banks work. Right. But that is not what the Torah asks of us. The Torah says there are circumstances where that's not enough. Yeah. You have to, where that's not enough. I don't know which one it's picturing here. Well, I don't know for sure either, but I think that second way you're talking about it is the more compelling one to me. Mm-hmm. You know how I'm always trying to implicate myself in the gospel, you know? Uh, and like, I live my life pretty much without cheating widows out of their homes <laughs> in any sort of direct way. Good job. Yeah. But if you start to think of widow as a stand-in, you know, in the in Deuteronomy, mm. it'd be a widow, orphan, and stranger. These are the vulnerable members 
of the community. And if you start to think like you're saying about cheating, meaning to not share in the ways that you are commanded to share in the Torah so that I have my wealth that I earned legitimately, but I keep it for my own ends instead of tending to the vulnerable. Then if you read that Mm -hmm. as cheating vulnerable Mm -hmm. people, Mm -hmm. then I'm square in the middle of that. And I think that's important to keep to keep in mind. So so maybe that they're maybe they're just doing what is sort of the expected way that the world operates in first century Jerusalem. But Jesus is saying, yeah, but according to the Torah, that that is cheating people out of what is rightfully theirs in the way that God frames rightfully belonging. Exactly. Exactly. Not the the way that yes, in the way that God frames it. Yeah. We come back here, I think it's worth saying, just like we're getting this combination of cheating widows while saying long prayers, Mm -hmm. which comes back to where we started and the love Mm -hmm. God, love neighbor, and that sort of, you can't, the long prayers don't matter Mm -hmm. if if you're first cheating widows to, to get there. Yeah. I think it's easy to miss the connection between what is being said right here and love God, love neighbor, which is where we came from. No, I think, and you know, it, it reminds me, the way you're talking about it reminds me again of, of just like modern Jewish practice that on our, the, the longest day of prayer and fasting and high ritual and penance, you know, Yom Kippur, where we are asking God for forgiveness for all of our shortcomings it is very clear in the teachings, God can't forgive you for things you have done to someone else. You Mm. need to make, you need to do everything in your power to make it right with that person on earth here. And then you also should, you know, add it to your prayers because you probably have put some pollution in the cosmos by doing that terrible thing. But a long prayer is not going to do it. I love that, Amy. That's so important. You've made me rethink my prayer life. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. All right. This last little section of this text in 41 to 44 is, it's a nice, it's a nice text that is often read sort of on its own. But I think given the conversation that we're having about what comes before it, maybe that informs the way we we might want to read this. Mm -hmm. So I'm picking up in verse 41. Jesus sat across from the collection box for the temple treasury and observed how the crowd gave their money. Many rich people were throwing in lots of money. One poor widow came forward and put in two small copper coins worth a penny. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I assure you that this poor widow has put in more than everyone who's been putting money in the treasury. All of them are giving out of their spare change, but she, from her hopeless poverty, has given everything that she had, even what she needed to live on. So Amy, just to put it in context a little bit, this the CEB translates two small copper coins worth a penny. The term there is lepta, which is a Roman coin, which my study Bible says was worth one 128th of a day's wage. And so like, I don't know exactly what that translates into now, but it doesn't translate into much. Lot. Yeah. So that's what this widow has given. We've talked a fair amount already about rich people showing off in religious Mm -hmm. settings. The widow here who puts in her last two pennies, so it seems, that's a different thing than what we've been talking about. Can you talk to me about her a little bit and how you relate to her? I liked your translation at the end there that that really raised up like this was, it's not that she only had these coins as her, you know, extra. This this was actually what she needed to live on. And yeah. so we, like we have talked in past weeks about what shifts when people are willing to tr- be completely vulnerable. Yeah. And the way that the more wealth you have, it seems the harder it is to yeah. imagine stepping into that kind of vulnerability. And so by, 
by giving the money that she actually needs. It's such a it's such a not modern American thing to do where we imagine we're all supposed to be able to take care of ourselves and be independent and, you know, bootstraps or whatever. Um, she she throws her lot in entirely with her faith. Yeah. And that's just it's it is a categorically different kind of giving. Yes. It's not just that it's a higher percentage of her money, which, you know, like I am always honored when people who have fewer resources choose to give some of them because it is, it matters more to them. It'll have more impact on their daily life. But if she's giving the money that she like actually needs just for daily functioning, it is categorically different. She's doing something that the other, they don't, she's doing something else. The way you said that is hearkening back, of course, to that Mark 10 text with a rich man who was told to give away everything he has, and that's what it takes to be a follower. Yes. And it's easy to say, but it's so much harder to give away when you have a lot than it is to give away when you have a little. But I'm not sure that's actually true, because either way, you have nothing at the end, and you are dependent on others, the community. So that idea that we talked about in that episode about not being self-sufficient, but relying on the community of faith to take care of you and to tend to you. Here she's able to do that and he was not. And so if you read them in contrast, like here is an exemplar of the faith. She reminds me whenever I read this story, my, my grandmother had four kids and her, my grandfather died when the kids were between six and 10. And so she raised four kids in the 1940s by herself as a single mother. And when she died, uh, just not too long ago, we found a box that she kept under her bed. And in that box, every week, she would take 10% of the income that she earned from her job as a secretary. And she would put that in there and then take it and give give it to the church every week. It's not giving away everything she had, but she took very seriously the tithing yes. 10%, even though she was very much like that. My dad's family was just on the edge of not being able to make it. Like maybe my dad's going to have to go live in an orphanage. Mm-hmm. And she kept giving her money to the church. And so she reminds me, like, I'm yeah. just like, if you just had saved that 10%, yeah. you could have, you know, had more or whatever. And her thing was, but this is the community that matters. And God asked us to do this. And so we do it. And people did take care of them in this re- in this really lovely way. So she reminds me of she reminds me of that. One of the things that raises for me in this text raises for me is you could read this as the temple or as the church in my grandmother's case being exploitative of people who cannot afford to actually give. Some people have read this text that way, that the temple is being predatory, taking somebody's last two Mm -hmm. coins. Mm -hmm. Do you have thoughts about that way of reading it? Whether whether we want to read this as... So from, from the widow's side, it is a beautiful act of faith. Some people have read from the temple side, it is an act of exploitation. Do you have any reaction to that? I think it would feel more exploitative if it didn't seem voluntary. Like, I don't get this, I don't get the sense from this text that someone from the temple came and took her money and said, we need this for the temple. I think that's probably true, but also you are sort of expected, at least in my understanding, to give like a sort of a cultural expectation that one would give to the, to the temple. No, I mean, I I don't know how, I'm sure there was an expectation. I don't know how, um, I guess I don't know how the details of it would have played out in that period. I will say that reading this text made me think about the way that we support our, my own religious community now and what it looks like for people in really different economic situations to try to figure out how to support. And even, even if people are giving more or less according to their ability that it still means really different things to them. Yeah. So I guess I feel like I'm sitting with it more in the present than in the yeah. the temple period. If you read it narratively, which may be a, a way to sort of step around the historical contextual 
to step around the historical context issue, mm-hmm. we have just had a statement about religious authorities who are cheating widows. And then we have a story about a widow who is giving her last two coins to the religious mm-hmm. center. Mm-hmm. If you read those two together, then this might be read as one of the ways in mm-hmm. which the religious center cheats widows. Mm-hmm. If you read it That's that way, guess. it's sort of like something you were saying earlier, which is that it's not its not that the asking to give is exploitative. It's that the not then living up to the obligations to mm. take care is exploitative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. she, you and I talk sometimes about this whole system of the Torah where you give out of your resources to take care of those who do not have enough only works if everybody if does it. Doing it. Otherwise, you're just taking advantage of people who are willing to give. Mm-hmm. And so you could read this text that way, where here we have a woman who cannot afford to give, who's trusting the community, and she's giving money to legal experts who we just talked about as walking around in fancy robes. Mm-hmm. Here, the implication is rather than taking care of people like her. That's depressing. <laughs> yeah. But then wouldn't you have expected Jesus to say something else about that other than just to say, other than to sort of praise the widow? Maybe not. I mean, yeah, maybe maybe so. Because <laughs> uh, he just said those types of people are going to be judged most harshly in the mm-hmm. previous verse. And then he gives this story where he praises her. And so... I mean, one way of reading it is what she's done is what you should do, mm-hmm. right? And so good on her for mm-hmm. giving and trusting the community. And the implication from the previous text is, and therefore, it depends on who you want to focus on, I guess. So good on her. She's an example of the way you should be. Mm-hmm. And then even more shame on you when you don't take care of someone who is mm-hmm. willing to do this. Yeah, it does kind of drive home that the conversation we have sometimes about that a willingness of some people to live ignoring the rules of the power structures in the world as they are. And so that will that will make your life harder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and that is what she even if she knows that the people are not really gonna support her, she's she's doing what she's supposed to do. And it's going to make her life harder. Yeah. By the way, the Greek that's there that says, when Jesus says she has put in more than everyone who's been putting money in the treasury, the Greek there could either be read as she's put in more than any individual person who's put more in, or it could be read as she's put more in than all of them together. Mm -hmm. So all of these fancy rich people that have given copious money out of their spare change, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. her little two... Two one hundred and twenty-eighths. What's that one? <laughs> I can't do math. One sixty-fourth of a day's 64th. wage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is worth more than all of that together. Like it's, that's just such an interesting sort of economic commentary on the value mm-hmm. of money and giving mm-hmm. from a from a kingdom of heaven sort of perspective. Yeah. Okay, so we've read a lot of text that are loosely connected, like you can see some themes going through here. But as you start to think about this text and contemporary life and our communities, what are you taking away as most important? I mean, I think I am I am still sort of holding on to that, I don't know what positive word to use, the goodness yeah. of that shift we felt in the first part of this reading from that you know, everyone, like people are sort of in their camps and they're sparring versus this, you know, real, seems like a real conversation between the one scribe and Jesus. And the fact that to get there, they had to zoom out a little bit. Like the the conversations where they yeah. were disagreeing before were really like very, very particular. <laughs> yeah. And it just, I don't know, it gives me some some hope for, conversations that need to be happening in our communities of a religious or not a religious nature. But I just feel like there's so many areas of discourse that are absolutely ruled by factions and become political immediately and have no room for nuance and no room for complexity and no room to really be able to change our minds or think together. 
And so I wonder, I wonder how far we would have to zoom out before we got to something where we were like, okay, we're starting. We can start here together and we can see each other here. Yes. It doesn't mean the devil's not in the details. Like it, it matters what happens after that, but it gives me some hope that, that these incredibly difficult conversations that are happening in, in our country, in our world right now, that there, there's some way for, for at least one person from each, you know, quote unquote faction to move towards each other and say, like, I see, I see you, I see you there and I respect where you are and then see what we can do from there. I really love that, Amy. And I love that the, the zooming out piece is about love Mm -hmm. that entails actions of caring, not just like feeling warmly toward, and that that's the common ground that, that they find is if you're living in a way that in this case honors God and also is oriented toward the neighbor, whoever the neighbor is, then we can work with that. Mm-hmm. And like, I think that's such a beautiful starting place for those kinds of conversations. For me, the other piece that goes along with that is this question about essentially what does it mean to love one's neighbor? Mm-hmm. And the subsequent conversations about the exploitation of widows and then about the giving that this widow does in contrast to the wealthy people. I think there's an invitation in there for us to find our own place as where we, where we fit in that conversation and to think about what does it mean in this instance to to cheat the widows is about not living up to the communal obligations toward the vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is a standard that's being sort of placed out there that is, as you were saying, it's not about fairness in the way that we conceive of it, but it is in the sense of communal responsibility for one another mm-hmm. and finding like those of us who have resources, what are we doing with those resources to tend to others? That seems urgently important in this text. Mm-hmm. The other thing I love about it is the lifting up of this widow. She becomes an exemplar of this is what it means to love God and love neighbor is to give your last two pennies. And, you know, I'm at a, I'm at a college where, you know, it's all about, I mean, it's not all about, but fundraising is true in churches. It's true. I'm sure in your place too, is that it's like, who can give the most money? Like we really need the giant gift. And like, those Mm -hmm. are the most important things that we want to celebrate And this is saying we need to celebrate everybody and especially the people who are willing to give the last thing that they have, who often get overlooked, even if they're, even if they're doing that, they're not going to get the buildings named for them and all of that sort of thing. So valuing the members of the community, not just, you know, it's easy to think of this widow just as a vulnerable member of the community, but she is a vulnerable member of the community who is giving everything she's got. So she's not just a vulnerable member of the community. She is also a full member of the community who is contributing as she's supposed to. So I I appreciate that Jesus celebrates that. And I hope that we might be able to do that too. Yes. Yes. Amen. Amy, next week we're going to be in Mark chapter 13, which is sometimes called the little apocalypse. That sounds so cute. (laughs) It's like a cute little apocalypse. It's like a cartoon. I remember this text from four years ago because this was the text we were on when COVID started and we were all going into our homes for 15 days to stop the spread or whatever it was. And we (laughs) commented on how ironic it was to be reading an apocalypse Mm -hmm. in that moment where society was shutting down. Little did we know. Little did we know. So I'm curious to see when we come back to it four years later in this moment, how that text will look to us. Mm. I look forward to it, Bobby. Me too. See you then. See ya. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Bible Worm podcast for details.
Bible Worm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all of our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Join us next time when we'll read Mark 13, 1-8 and 24-37, Mark's view of the Day of Judgment, sometimes known as the Little Apocalypse. Until then, keep on digging.